0: The campaigns themselves on the right, whether it's Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, Carrie Lake in Arizona, Blake Masters in Arizona, these are must-win races for Republicans. And you have some of their candidates completely dark on television spending or digital ad spending, which is bizarre.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Kyle Tharp, managing editor at For What It's Worth Media. Kyle publishes a leading newsletter covering the internet and politics, as well as several other products at the intersection of politics, media, and advocacy. His newsletter features research about political campaign spending on social media, for example. Kyle was previously VP for communications at Acronym, where his newsletter was incubated before he spun it out as a separate entity. He previously ran marketing at NGP Van. If you're interested in the internet and politics, you should know Kyle. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Kyle Tharp with, for what it's worth, media.
0: This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at Graphicacy.com. That is G R A P H I C A C Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world.
1: Kyle, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: Yeah, I'm Kyle Tharp. I and CEO and managing editor of For What It's Worth, which is a progressive digital media company that tracks sort of the online forces that impact our politics. I have spent a little over 10 years working in the progressive movement, the intersection of advocacy, politics, technology, including a multi-year tour at NGP Van, leading marketing there, a company that you yourself founded. Before NGP I was working in the immigrant rights movement both locally and nationally. In the last election cycle in 2020, I led communications for a digital-first nonprofit called Acronym which ran a multi-million dollar expenditure against Donald Trump.
1: And even though we share that time at NGP Van or at least employment there, we didn't actually really overlap, although I occasionally visit the office so I met you, but We'll have to talk a little bit about that. Can we start more at the beginning, though? Like, where are you from and what kind of family and education?
0: Yeah, I'm from the South. I was raised in a conservative family in East Tennessee, not far from where Dolly Parton is from. Went to public school my whole life and ended up majoring in social work at the University of Tennessee, getting a master's degree in social work, which kind of introduced me to the nonprofit space. In college and grad school, I was a typical activist. I kind of had my political awakening during the George W. Bush administration, similar story to a lot of folks, was really inspired by the Obama campaign in 2008, volunteered there, and kind of joined the progressive movement after that, eventually moved to D.C. The rest is history.
1: What was it about social work that attracted you? That often seems to come to people a little later in life than college if they become passionate about it. What was it that got you that early and took you down that path?
0: Right. I think some of it was sort of a reaction to growing up in kind of wealthy suburbs and a conservative environment. I wanted to kind of do the opposite of that. And yeah, I really wanting to kind of cure a lot of the societal ills that I saw around me, particularly on the policy side of things, wealth inequality. I had studied abroad in Mexico when I was in an undergrad and really falling in love with the country and people coming back and working with immigrant farm laborers uh, in East Tennessee and, and um, undocumented folks in the activism space really just made me want to dedicate my career to helping folks. And that was a good segue into my later jobs and activism for immigration reform and, and advocacy there. But yeah, social work is kind of a, uh, it's a weird thing now looking back at where I am and, and Writing newsletters and doing communications, it doesn't necessarily seem like it makes a lot of sense.
1: You worked at the Emerson Collective, which is a slightly mysterious <laughs> enterprise. What was your
0: experience like there? Yeah, so that was a short term gig out of graduate school. I actually went into the Peace Corps had this insane experience where I almost lost my leg, was medically evacuated from Africa, and I was back in the US and I needed a job. And I was like, what should I do?
1: Before you get to that, how does how did you almost lose your leg? You can't just like mention mention the lion attack or whatever it was. Yeah,
0: exactly. No, there's. Uh, I I lived in in rural Mozambique and uh, I picked up a flesh eating bacteria on my ankle. Really crazy stuff. Um,
1: Dangerous, but a lot smaller than a lion.
0: Yeah, not a lion, uh, not a rhinoceros or whatever. But anyway, I, I came home from the Peace Corps and and I really wanted to get back into sort of immigrant rights activism and advocacy, and at the time. Emerson Collective had funded a documentary called The Dream Is Now. And this is during that 2013, 2014 time period when comprehensive immigration reform in Congress was actually like a thing. Like, I think it had passed the Senate, and it was being held up in the House. And so Emerson was funding this documentary and coordinating showings around the country to build momentum for passing the DREAM Act and for passing comprehensive immigration reform. So I, I was on sort of their field team helping promote those advocacy efforts, but it was kind of before that organization got really into funding larger political projects, I would say.
1: And for those who don't know who's behind Emerson, who is?
0: Yeah, it's primarily funded, founded by uh, Lorraine Powell.
1: Steve Jobs' spouse. So a little time at the Coalition for Immigrant Justice Mm -hmm. in Alabama.
0: Yeah, so working in the immigrant rights movement took me to a bunch of places. In graduate school, I um, did sort of my main internship with a group of Head Start centers in rural East Tennessee that provided services for mostly undocumented farm workers. Uh, Then I moved to Alabama, uh, which is... You know, despite me being from Tennessee, Alabama is much more Southern and a complete, completely different experience. It's wild. Um, I lived there for about a year and a half working for a statewide coalition of immigrant rights groups, uh, local undocumented immigrant communities from around the state. I got to drive all over small towns across Alabama. It's a beautiful state and really worked with the grassroots community in terms of a- advocating for policies to improve the lives of immigrants in the south and in Alabama. Did you get anywhere with that? <laughs> yeah, actually there were so many inspiring moments living in Alabama and working directly with immigrant folks, seeing, you know, partnerships between some of these, you know, predominantly white far-right redneck sheriffs and local undocumented immigrant community groups was really inspiring and it kind of gave me hope that you know no one is beyond um, you know, changing hearts and minds. There obviously were a ton of challenges. During that time, Alabama in 2011 passed the most radical anti-immigrant law in the country, HB 56, which basically made it a crime to give a ride to someone if they were not in the country legally bizarre legislation that was ultimately struck down a lot of provisions of it were struck down in court. Through my work in Alabama, I sort of built networks with the national immigrant rights movement and a whole bunch of groups based out of Washington, D.C. When my husband ended up going to grad school in D.C., I moved up here as well and ended up sort of serving in a coordinating capacity and communications for coalition of national immigrant rights groups. How did you
1: land at NGP Van?
0: It's a great question. I was at a conference uh, while I was working in immigrant rights and just met the marketing team. This was at Netroots Nation probably in 2015 uh, in Phoenix and really just hit it off. Was looking to do something a little bit different um, while staying politics adjacent. I think working for a technology company was a really exciting learning opportunity. I think the company at the time was looking for someone to focus on communications and PR. I immediately just joined the team just several days after there was a very large newsworthy snafu around Hillary and Bernie's data at the end of 2015. I think I worked there for three years throughout the the 2016 election. It was a really great experience. What was your impression of the company at the time? It was a small company, but growing. When I started, particularly working on the marketing team, it was when the company was really starting to focus on moving into the nonprofit space by creating launching its every action brand. And so you had a lot of folks that were left over from the pre-merger days of NGP or VAN, and a lot of folks that were coming on to start to grow this larger nonprofit brand. I was there until 2019. By the time I left, the company was growing extremely rapidly, hiring tons of new folks, aggressive sales and marketing goals. And it was really cool to learn and see how, um, particularly on the marketing and sales side of things, how to build a pipeline and and build momentum of bringing in tons of new clients.
1: What would you say was the key learnings that you took from that time?
0: Yeah, sure. The marketing team that I came on to and then eventually co-led was really focused on inbound content marketing. So creating a whole bunch of blog content and content pieces that would sort of serve as a top of the funnel way to bring in subscribers and potential new prospects, leads, clients. That was something that was new to me, but I learned so much that I've been able to take to my current endeavor in growing an audience, both uh, you know previous jobs as well as the, my current situation and and that was really fascinating i think i also served under some leadership at ngp that was really focused on aggressive goals and and how to set and achieve those aggressive goals and a lot of times i would think that some of our goals were too aggressive and it was really a great learning experience to hustle and reflect on you know what we were able to achieve there
1: does that inbound marketing work? Did it work in that case? Because oh, it seems like a tremendous amount of effort sometimes, and I've seen
0: it not work. What did you see? There's so many different parts to inbound marketing and content marketing. Some things that stuck out to me were you know, learning ways to completely dominate Google search. For whenever anybody searches for nonprofit technology or political technology, they would immediately come across ngp or every actions websites or blog content or reports and that is a really powerful tool to use nowadays with my current newsletter i am always thinking about ways to bring folks in through google search hacks like that you know if someone searches for like best political newsletters they'll find stuff on my site and that's that's really key and that's something i learned at ngp but also, you know, the collaboration there between marketing and sales and understanding like what we were there for to bring in clients and make sure that they were happy and and then tell the story of those clients was a really, really great time. Why did you leave? It's a good question. I think, you know, I'm a millennial. I think working at one place for three and a half years is pretty rare, at least in D.C. And so particularly, you know, we were coming up on the 2020 presidential election And I really wanted to sort of get back into the fight and do something a little bit more impactful, more political, and sort of more directly related to getting Trump out of office is long story short.
1: How did you find your way to acronym? And by the way, I just interviewed Tara again.
0: It will be out by the time this one is. Yeah, she's fantastic. So when I was thinking about moving on from the tech space back into politics I was a little bit jaded by a whole host of legacy political organizations. I will not name names at this point, but I was not exactly seeing a lot of creativity or innovation happening in the traditional DC political space. I came across a group called Acronym, just coincidentally, I think looking at folks that were doing interesting things online, completely cold applied, just emailed my resume, and eventually interviewed with Tara and and got the job. And the rest is history. I immediately connected with the team and with Tara's vision for really leveling up Democrats' digital capacity, whether that was through advertising or by sharing learnings, and eventually led communications for that organization throughout the entire cycle. It was a completely wild ride, as I'm sure you can imagine, but probably the most fulfilling job I ever had.
1: What is your impression of Tara? I only have a few hours on the other side of a microphone from her to judge, but she seems like a force.
0: Absolutely. One of the most brilliant people that I've worked with and also super kind and and humble and wicked smart. She has a way of being able to identify problems before other folks identify those problems and immediately pivot to scheming and thinking about ways to build solutions.
1: I was talking to her about her Courier News work, her media organization that has locations in eight states. She characterized kind of a decision to end acronym and spin out various things that were experiments that succeeded. She named FWIW, your enterprise, as one of those along with Courier tell me about like starting the work, starting this newsletter within acronym and then
0: the process for spinning it out into its own thing. For sure. Well, like I mentioned, when it comes to my belief in the value of content marketing for what it's worth was basically just one piece of content that acronym put out, my team put out every Friday is kind of a labor of love that we would just It was kind of a side hustle within the company. We would push this out, share our take on what was happening every week, highlight smart strategies that we appreciated, really as a resource and a tool for the progressive movement to learn more about the digital space and to shout out actors that were doing a great job, as well as shady actors on the right that maybe we wanted to call attention to. It was a minor vertical at the organization, but it really helped put the organization on the map because... A lot of political reporters, particularly during the 2020 presidential election, were always looking for different data points aside from traditional polling or TV ad spending to really tell who was up and who was down and and how voters were being reached. And for what's worth, provided that a really unique data point and voice in that space. Tara launched it with a previous communications director in, I want to say, October of 2018, and I joined the team, took it over in April of 2019. So shortly thereafter, I think back then we had around 1,500 subscribers. Since Spinning Out, we've grown into a community of over 20,000 subscribers across multiple newsletters. The whole point has been to provide value to the community, educate journalists on the digital space, and to sort of monitor and track different online forces that are impacting our politics. Who's reading it? Great question. Uh, lots of folks. I think one main decision why Tara and I decided to continue with the newsletter after acronym was that the audience is extremely high impact. These are folks that work in the West Wing, work in the New York Times, uh, across the political spectrum, folks in Wisconsin and Michigan and swing states and operatives on campaigns and campaign managers and journalists in London and across the world. So these are folks that either make politics their living or folks that really could benefit professionally from the insights that we provide. I'm extremely passionate and and I'm a big believer that politics and advocacy is one of the least creative places <laughs> least creative industries. And so I want to help political operatives think outside the box, particularly as the campaign industry changes from one that is dominated by old white TV consultants into one that is much more focused on younger you know, millennial digital first natives that are running campaigns. I think that's been a big part of it.
1: When you talk about 20,000 subscribers across your newsletters, are those paid subscribers or what percentage of them are?
0: No, those are active free subscribers, so I only want to keep subscribers on our list that have been opening and reading the newsletter over the past like six months or so. We have a couple hundred paid subscribers, and I'm happy to talk more about sort of revenue strategy for a business like this. But no, the vast majority are free subscribers. We really want to provide a ton of this content for free to campaign operatives in particular and younger staffers that could benefit from these insights.
1: I was hoping that there were more paid subscribers for your sake and for the sake of like what seems like a worthwhile enterprise. How do you keep it afloat
0: if it's not funded by subscription? Sure. The subscription model that's primarily become like a fad because of Substack, the platform which we use to publish, is really fascinating. And it's been a super, you know, huge learning experience for me. It's also extremely difficult. So, there are a ton of newsletter writers on Substack. Very few of them can make a full living off of paid subscriptions. There are a couple of notable ones that make a lot of money. It's the typical folks on Twitter that you see their hot takes all the time. However, we have an opportunity to generate revenue in a couple of different ways. Obviously, recurring revenue via paid subscribers. Is amazing. You don't have to think about it. It's great, and that will continue to grow. We also provide sponsored placement in our newsletters, which helps get get us a little bit closer to our goals. Like minded advertisers, whether they're digital firms or TV ad firms or advocacy groups, can pay for placement, as well as providing similar types of insights that we do with our For What's Worth newsletter to large coalitions or nonprofit groups that want specific insights so we write a climate related newsletter that breaks down the online fights for climate change and that's because we have the support of a large digital climate coalition that really seeks value in those insights so yeah you can you know do pseudo consulting type tracking work you can take sponsorships you can take subscriber revenue But yeah, I think a lot of what you hear about a Substack subscriber model being easy to strike gold, it's pretty difficult. If you think about how many subscriptions you pay for when it comes to newsletters and things, there's a kind of a high bar there.
1: Yeah, I'm glad to have asked you that and to have heard your answer because, you know, I had this idea going into this interview that if I just started a Substack newsletter of my podcast, that I would become very wealthy in a few days, so now I'm a little disillusioned.
0: Yeah, it's a lot harder than it looks yeah. for sure.
1: Especially given all of your knowledge about how to do that kind of thing. Of course, it is not a very large niche, and that may bear on it as well. Your audience isn't endless with the kind
0: of research that you do. Exactly the the universe of folks that are interested in in digital politics. Well, it probably should be bigger is relatively modest. Um if you're writing about like the NFL <laughs> then sure I'm sure you can you can Or hear- even just the elections themselves in a more crooked media sort of uh, popular way maybe it's Yeah. Different. Yeah. Yeah, and like partisan red meat content this is true across platforms. But partisan red meat content always performs really well, right? So if you're the Lincoln Project and you're just talking about how Republicans are stupid, it's very easy to get a bunch of likes and shares there.
1: So clarify for me what kind of I mean, I've looked at it, but clarify for people what kind of content
0: they would get for what it's worth. Yeah. Primarily, we, we track the intersection of tech, digital, online influence and politics. So there are a whole bunch of different data points that we can see about how the internet impacts our politics a major one is digital advertising so how much money are campaigns republicans democrats outside groups advocacy groups lobbying firms how much are they paying to reach voters via facebook ads or instagram or google youtube snapchat increasingly and a little bit slower than most folks would like but Campaigns are shifting away from exclusively running ads on TV and direct mail. And so we've seen cycle after cycle, more and more campaigns are spending more and more ad dollars on platforms like YouTube and Instagram and Facebook. And so we're able to track those because the platforms provide really in depth searchable databases of every political ad that's on those platforms. For What's Worth was the first sort of outlet to really dive deep into these political ad libraries online and so we share that content every week there are a couple other data points and tools that we can use we have access to a tool called crowd tangle from facebook which really shows what posts um around a certain topic or or politician are getting the most shares and likes and comments which really kind of shows grassroots enthusiasm for a candidate or issue and then we can also track random online forces that folks may not know are impacting our politics a couple weeks ago we did kind of a joint investigation with a journalist called judd lagoon i know judd yeah into a dark money group that was running several hundred thousand dollars worth of advertising to kill the senate's reconciliation bill the inflation reduction act from the left saying it wasn't progressive enough it turns out the group was backed by Republicans and was not exactly a a liberal climate group after all. And so we're able to sometimes catch these online forces and actors that folks aren't aware of that are impacting our politics too.
1: When you were talking about platforms that have this amount of transparency, there's a lot of platforms you didn't mention, particularly the ones on the right. Does what's being spent or posted on those media matter? What's the state of what's
0: untracked by you? Yeah. So a lot of campaigns are starting to spend much more money on streaming devices, reaching folks who are kind of cord cutters, right? So folks who watch television on Roku and Hulu and their smart TVs. That is by and large opaque. We don't know how much folks are spending there and what they're running there. In some of my past jobs, I've seen advertisers spend as much as 30% of their digital budgets on those types of advertising. So that's something that we can't see and that's very mainstream. If I think about my own media consumption habits, I watch things on Hulu and and Roku all the time and and I get served ads there. And so that's definitely how campaigns are are gonna reach me most effectively. Those right-wing sites that you mentioned, There's like Truth Social and Getter and the video site Rumble. We don't have insight into any sort of paid advertising on those platforms if they take paid advertising, but we can kind of snoop around sometimes and and try and see what narratives and content are trending in those places as well.
1: There are a number of big Republican campaigns. It's been reported they're dark on TV, the Mastriano's where the republicans have pulled their funding could something be going on more with those campaigns than we know about because they're spending in seek more secretive ways or can we t- mostly just tell that because of FEC reporting how do we investigate that
0: for you know the federal campaigns all their spending is transparent through the FEC and and statewide campaigns through their respective states I will say, you know, Mitch McConnell was onto something when he said that they were having a, a problem this cycle with candidate quality. The campaigns themselves on the right, whether it's Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, Carrie Lake in Arizona, Blake Masters in Arizona, these are must-win races for Republicans and you have some of their candidates completely dark on television spending or digital ad spending, which is bizarre. If I were a political scientist, I would be very eager to study this, to, to decide, does campaigning matter? Because we now have a, a very clear control where these campaigns are not running ads whatsoever. I will say those that disparity is being made up for by large spending by conservative dark money groups on television and digital. So voters are still going to be seeing pro-Republican, anti-Democratic ads. They're just not coming from the campaigns themselves.
1: Yeah, and therefore, maybe the political scientist won't have such an easy time of sorting that out, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's bizarre. I mean,
0: I was driving around Arizona two weeks ago, and even the yard signs for Blake Masters are placed and provided by the Super PAC supporting his candidacy and not his own campaign, which is, is a first for me seeing Super PACs buying yard signs.
1: You've referred to your enterprise as a media company, that calls to mind a large enterprise, which is not where you are at the moment, but you are an enterprise. What's the path there in your mind? What are you trying to do to build this up? And
0: where would you like to go? My position on the current state of the media is that It's all just content at the end of the day, (laughs) particularly as I'm getting my news on Instagram from my local news, particularly in DC from a couple key Instagram accounts. Tons of people younger than me are getting their news from random TikTok accounts. I see the way that Americans consume media and particularly this kind of more valuable elite audience. The way that they consume media is becoming much more fragmented. Folks are paying for... Smaller verticals, more niche content, and that's only going to increase. I would love uh, to grow for what's worth into a very large enterprise with multiple products covering multiple issues.
1: Outside of politics as, or just within? I, no, within, within
0: politics yeah. um, and advocacy. What's important is just like getting through the midterms and seeing the state of politics come December. We were able to grow significantly during the 2020 presidential primary because there were so many things to track, right? If the 2024 presidential election is Donald Trump versus Joe Biden from December on, there's a little bit less to track there. So it depends on kind of the circus nature of our politics and how sort of saturated the industry is. One thing that I've been really impressed by and excited about witnessing over the past couple of years is more and more, there are legacy journalists at the New York Times and Politico, other sites that are starting to take the internet and politics beat a little bit more seriously. Whereas we used to be one of the only folks in town that was calling attention to nefarious ad spending or, or viral posts, there are a couple other folks with very large distribution doing that. That's given me a lot of solace.
1: Well. It- I can see it giving you solace. I could also see it giving you heartburn just from a competitive standpoint. How do you see your competition? What what else can people read that
0: overlaps or competes with your offering? Right. You mentioned that we provide like niche content. And so I don't believe anyone spends as much time in digital political ad libraries as we do, I think you could probably look at Facebook and Google's internal data on the usage of their platforms, and it would be myself and my colleague Nick. So yeah, I don't think there's necessarily a really strong competitive lane there. But the internet is a massive place, and it is way too much for a couple researchers to be monitoring at all times and so i think it's incredibly important that more journalists particularly in the mainstream with larger audiences pay attention to this stuff
1: who do you think covers the space well who do you read in the mainstream press or outside of it where would i go be- besides yours which i have subscribed to in a paid way
0: today there are two journalists that are both on substack that write about the internet that i really appreciate one is casey newton who has interviewed like Mark Zuckerberg. He also writes for The Verge. Casey Newton, he writes a, a newsletter called Platformer. And then Ryan Broderick writes a newsletter called Garbage Day that is about like dark corners of the internet and weird things that are are super, super crazy. Um, so th- that's just specifically on the internet beat. I think Judd Lagoon, popular information, amazing accountability journalism, that really touches a little bit on the intersection of the internet and politics. McKenna Kelly at The Verge writes really great. She, she exclusively covers the internet and politics beat and does an amazing job. Shane Goldmacher at The New York Times writes on campaign finance, which really touches the digital stuff quite a bit. Um, so yeah, there's there's a host of folks. Um, but I, as a newsletter writer, I'm also a massive newsletter consumer. So my inbox every morning is just it's too much to go through.
1: (laughs) Well, do you manage that through your inbox or is there a better way to centralize the reading of the key feeds that you get?
0: No, uh, there's not. I I mean, I use Google Docs religiously. So whenever I see links to things that I want to read, I dump them in an ongoing Google Doc. Um, But no, Substack has an app for reading other Substacks, but I, I manage everything in my inbox.
1: Of the things that you've come across in this coverage over this year, anything else that you would like to highlight that you thought people
0: should know about? What else have you found out? Sure. TikTok is something that I do not personally use, but
1: it is. I've I've been in it much more lately because I'm, learning about it, it is kind of an addictive medium for the things that pop up to me about the war in Ukraine, or I have no idea if these people have any credibility, but they do their little videos and it's hard not to watch them.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think TikTok is, is like the current thing. It's something that uh, I've been resisting joining personally, but I can view TikToks via their web browser and stuff. But have you
1: thought about like a TikTok... Output of what you do?
0: I ha- I have. People yeah. uh, have encouraged me on it. You know, explainer videos are really popular on the platform. So I don't doubt that it could be super intriguing. In 2020, the DNC instructed candidates to stay off of TikTok. The US government continues to tell Americans to be careful with the app because of their ties to the Chinese government. However, this cycle, the DNC joined TikTok themselves and over 30 major Democratic candidates are on the app. And that is for one reason, and one reason alone is that they simply cannot resist the millions and millions of eyeballs that the platform provides them.
1: I was following one candidate in Virginia who was on TikTok. I was watching her and they they were, I don't know, the, the TikToks were they they felt unserious to me. It's a tricky balance to post things that are
0: attention getting, but valuable, right? Right, yeah. and TikTok does not want politics on its platform. They continue making policy moves and decisions to disincentivize political actors from using their platform in any way. They, they don't want, want the controversy. To, no, they want it to be a fun app for young people but young people are saying no politics is who we are and what we believe in and you know here's how we're going to explain different decisions and voting elections and things on the platform it's unavoidable the entire internet is becoming like downstream of TikTok, as one of my favorite newsletter writers just wrote. And so, more and more campaigns are going to have to deal with that. I don't think like candidates should have to do like weird dances in order to stay relevant on the app. I think they can share explainer content and serious issue focused content to reach that younger audience. Um, and generally, like efforts to reach young voters this cycle have been really interesting. We've seen just tons of campaigns spending money on Snapchat, all these campaigns engaging on TikTok. Folks say that young people like don't turn out in the midterms and every cycle we have the same conversation. So it'll be interesting to see who's kind of capitalized that.
1: Is there a way to sort of summarize the balance of power between the right and the left in online spending? Do you have a sense of who's winning at the moment and why?
0: Yeah, so I think the story of this cycle has been Democratic candidates far outspending their Republican opponents on every platform from Facebook, Instagram, Google, YouTube, Snapchat. In key Senate races, that disparity is something like five to one. Is that just candidate spending or is that spending on the race overall, including... Dark money and and independent stuff. That's candidate spending, and candidate spending is important uh, for a couple reasons. One, it's for grassroots fundraising purposes, right? Majority of a campaign's Facebook ads are geared towards raising more money, so they can run more ads and stuff. And Republicans. Grassroots fundraising this cycle has completely dried up. There's been multiple reports about this strange phenomenon of Republican small dollar donors not opening up their wallets. There's a lot of reasons for that that folks have have theorized, including former President Trump sucking up all the energy and money on on the right. But candidate spending matters and they're able to serve as their own messengers um, in these ads. Dark money spending is a little bit different. So it depends on the state. I would say overall, right and left at this stage of the election are about at parity when it comes to television and digital ad spending. It kind of goes back and forth every week at this point. But currently we're seeing a a Republican spending wave happening online through a couple dark money groups and super PACs that could change very soon, too.
1: If you were called in to advise a party committee or campaign on what kind of mix or what kind of content to put on what would you suggest?
0: You know, I stay away from advice because there are a lot smarter people than me in this industry. However, I would say something that I think a lot of strategists already know, and that is think about how you consume content and then think about how your parents and your aunts and uncles consume content and where they consume information online. So if that's on, if your mom is like on Instagram all day long, then maybe you should make sure a campaign is reaching her there. I'm a big believer that really slickly produced narrated political ads are pretty much ineffective at persuading just about anybody, right? The more overt the political ad seems, I feel like the less effective it could be folks and and experiments may disagree with me on that but i am a big advocate of organizations and campaigns boosting news articles on facebook so just paying to promote an article from the new york times about how doug mastriano is crazy like i feel like that is a really effective way at reaching voters as opposed to creating a gift that says doug mastriano is crazy voters want to kind of explore those themes for themselves a lot of campaigns are doing that by the way so it's not necessarily my advice, but it's something that I think folks are already on top of.
1: Is there an analog on the right to what you do? Is there somebody who's coming from that part of the spectrum that does that covers this?
0: Uh, a little bit. There's a Republican strategist who I really respect, Eric Wilson, uh, who writes a very popular newsletter called Learn, Test, Optimize about sort of digital stuff in politics, and he also has has really focused on creating resources for campaigns to be smart about digital politics. Um, So you should definitely talk to him. I've had
1: him on the show. I I'm aware of his work. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And he, he does some funding of startups also. So he has that startup caucus and a few things like that. He's definitely active. What else would you want people to know about what you're up to?
0: In general, I think there should be much more investment in the progressive media space in particular, Folks need to pay more attention to the different forces that impact our politics online. A lot of times the mainstream press and sort of mainstream political strategists discover really important trends months after they've been peaking or going viral online. We saw this in Virginia last year with the Parents' Rights Movement. These were things that were being talked about online for months and suddenly The New York Times and everyone else covers it a week before Election Day and then (laughs) look what happens on Election Day. And so really uh, understanding and supporting ways that we can track trends before they go viral and, and have a huge impact. Is important. There are great folks that do that. Media Matters on the left is an amazing organization that does a lot of this work, and then there's a bunch of other independent strategists that do that too. But I think continuing to support those and build a community around those is important.
1: It's impossible not to notice how much of our politics is colored by del- misinformation, deliberate disinformation that is available online. Some of it through organic people doing their thing. And some of it much more actively spearheaded with money and groups and just incentives for people, you know, with their little businesses, pushing stuff, pushing fake news in the true sense of the term. Does that intersect with what you follow or do you have thoughts about that? What's going on there?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think one really insane example is this idea. There is, uh, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but there's this idea that, uh, on the right, that children, school children in public schools are allowed to identify as cats and dogs. They call this furries and teachers give them litter boxes to use in school. I
1: did see this. I even saw someone, one of our comedians interviewing a person who believed that at a Trump rally and had no evidence the, it fell apart during the interview and it didn't make any sense. But it's funny how
0: numerous things like that are pushed around. It's the most insane thing. It started online, mostly in like private Facebook groups, mostly coming from a position of sort of anti-trans hate from right people. Oh, if trans kids can identify how they want to identify, then kids are identifying as animals too. It's completely vile lies, but it has moved from online to offline. My sister's a school teacher. The school that she works with has had to field calls to their front office around kids being provided litter boxes. It's insane. This is happening in hundreds of, hundreds of schools across the country. Administrators are having to put out statements and deal with this. This all started online and this can have electoral ramifications, right? So if parents are stirred up and have this idea that schools are just allowing any crazy stuff to happen. This is just one data point, whether it's true or not, that gets into their heads and, and makes people think that crazy stuff's happening.
1: You want to hear another another crazy thing that's been spread online that is without substance? There, I've heard this, I don't know if you've heard this, but I've heard that the former president was claiming that he won the election in spite of losing the electoral college and the popular vote. and having all of his challenges in the courts turned back. Has that come across your attention?
0: Never heard of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's bizarre. And a whole nother component to this is whether and how the large social platforms allow these lies to to be spread, right? Um,
1: And now we got, uh, as I understand it, more people believe that election lie than the cat lie.
0: That's definitely believable.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You found yourself, I think, in an interesting spot. Uh, covering what you cover, it certainly seems like a good fit for you. Does it feel like something you're going to be doing for a long
0: time? or, Or do you keep your eye open for other possibilities? Where are you personally with this? I currently want to provide value. One thing I was taught years ago is to not just contribute to the same old DC noise, but to really try to break through it. And so I do not want to become just another voice of Hot takes. There's tons of people on Twitter that have lots of ideas about how Democrats or Republicans should run, and so as long as I'm creating value, that's something that I find really important. But I love lots of things other than politics. I told you, like I love running and I love being outside. So you know, maybe I'll write a book about trail running one day.
1: Well, you you mentioned before we started recording that you're about to run a was a hundred mile race. Yes. Why? And just say a word or two about what
0: that's about. I got into trail running really during the pandemic, ultra marathons, you know, it's one way to kind of unplug and get off of Twitter and get off of my my email and and just be outside. But there's a whole nother component to it of of kind of learning to strategize and overcome pain and (laughs) essentially and learn how to to deal with pain that I really uh, appreciate from running. And so it's definitely my passion.
1: You've mentioned someone else, at least one person working alongside you or contributing also to your
0: newsletters. Can you mention a thing or two about who? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I have a colleague, Nick Seymour. He actually just moved to Europe to go to graduate school, but is is continuing with me through the election and writes a, a really great climate newsletter called Climate Monitor, as well as edits for what it's worth and helps me come up with tons of ideas for a newsletter is kind of a data genius and so he's really great at automating a lot of the systems that i use to track digital advertising as well
1: you also have something called campaigner on Substack. what's the distinction between that and your main newsletter
0: yeah campaigner is a weekly interview series with uh political campaign staffers so i during the 2020 cycle, I, I grew a little bit frustrated by seeing mainstream political press interview the same senior Democratic political strategists over and over again. I really respect James Carville and Paul Begallo, but there are more people that have more takes than just those two. And so Campaigner was a way to to start to shine a spotlight on mostly younger Folks who I think are really smart working in democratic politics. We collaborate with the organization Arena to produce that newsletter on temporary hiatus, but we'll be coming back after election day, hopefully to interview a lot of folks that are working on these major Battleground State campaigns.
1: Well, it all sounds pretty good. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? No.
0: I think you've asked me quite a bit. No, I'm I'm excited to do what I do, this election. Cycle, as you are aware, they're always bizarre, but this one's pretty nutty and the stakes are super high. So do you have a feeling about, oh, no, I uh, I'm super anti political prognostication only because I'm wrong every single time that I try to predict elections. So, you know, I I am a
1: eternal pessimist, so I'm usually right.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I, I prefer pessimism to optimism these days. But no, it's anybody's game. I think my biggest thing is, um, is always thinking about my own media consumption bubble. And what I'm seeing is so different from what the vast majority of Americans are seeing. So despite me thinking that John Fetterman, for example, in Pennsylvania is running a brilliant campaign, Pennsylvania is a 50-50 state. And so just because he has some really solid memes and, and grassroots enthusiasm online does not mean he's going to run away with that election.
1: And it doesn't mean that he's going to break the sort of trend of midterm elections going against the party in power, especially in a state like that. So I'm, it's certainly a race I'm worried about probably more than most people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah for
1: sure. Well, uh, Kyle, super great to talk to you.
0: Anything else you want to say? Nope, that's it. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I had fun.
1: That was Kyle Tharp. He's at fwiwmedia.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with The Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.